Welcome to the Cumberland River Compact's River Talks podcast. By listening, you are becoming a part of our River Talks community. We're so excited to have you. River Talks are recorded live in Nashville, Tennessee at the Cumberland River Compact's River Center. Today, we are very excited to host Kat Dearson from the Defenders of Wildlife. Kat's work to protect the hellbender is a fascinating model of how to engage with landowners to provide mutual benefits for people, animals, and water. Kat Dearson is responsible for advancing defenders' conservation objectives throughout the southeast with an emphasis on the southern Appalachian region. She promotes imperiled species conservation by engaging state and federal agency officials, public and private landowners and managers, and citizen stakeholders in integrated wildlife and landscape-scale conservation efforts. We hope you enjoy hearing from Kat Dearson on River Talks. The Southeastern Hellbender Conservation of um, Advancing Conservation for the Eastern Hellbender on Private Lands in the Southeast. A um, couple of key phrases there, advancing private lands in Southeast, and I'm going to talk about a little bit of all of those. Let's see if I got this. Okay, but first uh, I need to do the obligatory talking a little bit about my organization, Defenders of Wildlife. Um, uh, Defenders is a large national nonprofit organization based in Washington, D.C. We were formed in 1947, so we're one of the oldsters. Uh, we've been around for a long time. We're a leading force um, movement across the country. Um, for most of our existence, we've been focused on the West, focused on carnivores, and focused on legal action. But in the last 10 or 15 years, we've really grown and expanded. Um, to, a, to focus on uh, protecting all of North America's biodiversity and through using a broader array of um, tactics to achieve our, our mission. So our Southeast office is in Asheville, North Carolina. We opened in 2015. Uh, like I said, we care about all biodiversity, but one of the reasons, really the most important reason we opened the Southeast office um, is to address the biodiversity or the conservation crisis facing imperiled aquatic species and species that rely on our rich temperate rainforests in the south. So, ooh, there we go. Ah, I spoiled that. I love that picture. Um, <clears throat> so I'm sure a lot of you guys uh, have probably seen one version of this map or another in the past. Um, this is a map of global species richness of salamanders. And man, do we have it going on in the salamander department. This is really just an amazing, amazing place to be if you love these little critters and, oops, wrong way, and if you care about their fate. We have so much diversity, so much endemism, and unfortunately, such high rates of imperilment. Also, and I'm not gonna talk too much about this today, but it is worth noting, I think, uh, even less charismatic than our wonderful salamanders or the freshwater fish um, that we have here in the southeast. It's 238 species in some of these basins. There are more species in some of the basins of the southeast than there are on the entire continent of Europe, fun fact. So we just have such, we are blessed with such rich diversity here. And it is not what you would call conventionally charismatic diversity. So um, because we can't always, you know, fight a big ground campaign for a big furry animal with claws like a wolf or a bear, we have to use different approaches to getting work done here. When you can't raise a million dollars for the pink fat mucket muscle or whatever it is, you know, you have to, uh, you have to come up with other forms of incentives um, to get conservation achieved here. 
So one more thing quickly about Defenders and why we wanted to move into the Southeast and why I've been working here for the last four years. I mean, just look at the Southeast. We are just overwhelmed with um, pressing concerns for addressing really a crisis in biodiversity decline in the Southeast. And unfortunately, compared to a, a lot of those other regions of the country, even some of the ones with also higher rates of endangerment, we have an infinitesimal fraction of the resources to address recovery of these species. Talking about defenders' evolution in, poly, um, in our sort of approach to how we do conservation, like I said, we've had a long legal history. Um, we have fought the good fight for the gray wolf and the red wolf and the grizzly bear, and we have shown up in the courts time and time again for that. Um, but we have really evolved in the last 15 or 20 years as an organization. We have an incredibly strong legislative department um, that works on everything from ensuring that Congress doesn't pass harmful laws to fighting for decent appropriations for the organizations like the Fish and Wildlife Service that are responsible for fulfilling our laws. Um, we have an incredible capacity to drum up grassroots support for the campaigns that we do for our various species. And I'm really proud to say that one thing we focused on a lot in the last five years is bringing in younger members and younger supporters. And then finally, we do a lot of work in the policy arena. Can anybody, does anybody want to hazard a definition for me of what policy is? I mean, it's a word we all use all the time, probably every day. Course of action. That's actually not bad at all. <laughs> this is one way of defining it. Isn't that helpful? Don't you guys know what I do for a living now? It's much, much more clear to you, right? Um, no, that is one way to define it, but that's not how conservation policy wonks like me usually define it. This is usually how we define policy. It is a course of action, uh, a principle adopted or proposed by an entity. Policy is not law. Policy is how law becomes action. So that is the space that I live in. I try to figure out how to get from a bad law to a better law or from a good law to a reasonable action. Some of the policy areas that I work in are the Endangered Species Act, obviously, another uh, lesser known but considerably more problematic law called the National Environmental Policy Act. I do some mining policy. And my very most favorite thing in the whole wide world, I do farm bill policy. And I am possibly the only living soul that would use those words together in the same sentence, but I love the farm bill. <clears throat> um, why? Why do I love the farm bill? Well, it is particularly relevant to why I love living and working in the Southeast. So. This is uh, a map that some of you have probably seen before, and it is notable for what it lacks in our region, which is almost any federal land whatsoever to speak of. An extraordinary amount of all of the private land in the United States is right here in the Southeast. And let's see, where are my statistics? And of the private lands that are in the Southeast, 75% of that land is in agriculture, is in farming, ranching, or commercial forestry. The overwhelming bulk of the Southeast is private. National forests are important, refuges are extraordinarily important, but if that was all we did to conserve species, we would lose most of the species in the South because that is just not where they are. 50%, uh, and that's probably very conservative, of federally threatened and endangered species occur primarily or exclu exclusively on private lands. So we cannot just protect forests here.
land use was identified as the major driver likely to have the biggest impact on biodiversity loss in this century, and that that driver would be particularly important for freshwater systems. So we can talk about climate change, we can talk about other drivers, but at the end of the day, it's very simple, it's land loss, and we are losing it at an astronomical rate in the South. So that is why I do what I do. All right, why are we concerned about agricultural threats to aquatic systems? Um, a lot of this is self-evident, but just in case some of it isn't, um, there are the sort of ongoing regular inputs from agriculture that, are, that we are all sensitive to from a water quality perspective, not just a habitat perspective, herbicides and pesticides, animal waste. Some of these other ones you wouldn't think of so much, stream channelization, which is what happens when a farmer is trying to take the natural meanders out of the stream so that he can basically have more arable land, and the infilling and backfilling that goes along with that. Um, Siltation and bank erosion that um, occur because of unsustainable farming practices, which is a lose-lose for everybody because not only does it hurt habitat, farmers are literally losing acres and acres per year of farmable land. So their overall marginal cost of farm goes up every year because of that. Um, and then road runoff and uh, very, very importantly, loss of riparian habitat and all of the things that go along with that, which I will talk a little bit more about um, here in a moment. So. Because of all those things, we have the farm. Well, because of all those things and a great many more, we have the farm bill. The farm bill is something that most people don't know a single thing about, but if you are currently eating food, which I can see that a great many of you are, if you will eat food today or at any point this week, the farm bill touches your life. It is everything from crop insurance to producers to um, food stamps for low-income individuals to really, if you can think to, to um, production and transport and logistics, if you can think of it, if you are eating food one way or another, the Farm Bill has decided what that food cost, how it got to you, how many hands it passed through, um, and to some extent, whether or not that food was produced in a sustainable manner. So. The Farm Bill is huge. It's like a 1,200-page document. There's one little 400-page corner of it that's all mine. It's called Title II. I love it. It is the conservation title of the Farm Bill, the Natural Resources Conservation Service. This is the branch of the U.S. Department of Agriculture that is responsible for providing financial and technical support to agricultural landowners to aid them in adopting more sustainable farming practices. And sustainability can mean soil, saving, it can mean carbon sequestration, it can mean improving water quality or water quantity in places where aquifers are getting low. Um, so conservation means many, many things uh, in the ag sustainability context, but what is important about NRCS and the delivery of funds under Title II is that it is all entirely voluntary. We don't regulate farms in this country, with the exception of controlled animal feeding operations and certain things that are direct, what we call point source pollution. There's an ag exemption in the Clean Water Act. We overwhelmingly let farmers do exactly what they want to do. We have, we have no stick when it comes to farmers. We have only carrots. But thankfully, Title II is a monster of a carrot. This most recent farm bill that passed at the end of 2018 dedicates 30 billion with a B dollars to advancing farmland conservation over the next five years until the farmland, um, the farm bill has to be reauthorized again. There is no source, federal, state, nonprofit, I defy you to find me a source that even comes 
close to that amount of money for funding and advancing conservation um, anywhere. And there are a couple of interesting facts to note about that. Despite the fact that there is so much money in the Farm Bill to advance conservation, it is these programs and this money can, like I said, can go to soil, can go to water, it can go to carbon, it can go to wildlife. It is vastly underutilized for wildlife in general, vastly compared to other regions underutilized in the southeastern states, and seriously, seriously underutilized when it comes to protecting aquatic species. The future is wide open. All you have to do is show up. It should be of concern that we don't really regulate farming very seriously in this country. Um, but the Farm Bill really does try to take a chunk out of that problem by making the carrot that it offers very attractive, not just to farmers, but to other entities that care about environmental outcomes. So it creates a lot, the money that it funds creates a lot of win-win situations. Originally, 20, 30 years ago, that money was designed basically to help on-farm sustainability. That was the main goal of Title II, help farm their water on the farm. But over the years, it has grown and expanded to consider off-farm impacts. So now you have local utilities that'll work with farming co-ops to help keep water down in the aquifer. You have groups like mine that you know, will work with farmers to help advance wildlife priorities. So the Farm Bill is very good at strategically bringing in other people who care about these outcomes and leveraging their resources to get more bang, to, to create win-win circumstances. Um, and why I love that is because it's good policy. It's clever, clever policy, and you just don't see it in many other laws. <clears throat> okay, so that's my policy spiel. The worst is over, I promise. Um, unless I go backwards and you have to read it all again. Okay, so now I'm going to talk about the Southeastern Hellbender Conservation Initiative, um, the program that I run out of Defenders of Wildlife. Okay, let's see. So we've talked about the fact that ag is really bad for biodiversity and particularly for aquatic species with all those impacts. Um, talked about the fact that the Farm Bill has a lot of potential. I will talk about how I am going to snatch away a good chunk of that wonderful ag money to help save hellbenders. Um, <clears throat> the umbrella that we are undertaking this effort in, we're calling the Southeastern Hellbender Conservation Initiative and our mission statement is that we're a long-term collaborative effort that brings together a large and diverse group of partners to invest in education, outreach, habitat restoration, and underline that one, and monitoring on private lands throughout the Southeast. The other operative term, as I've already discussed a little bit, is private lands. Um, the only places that hellbenders are doing well across their historic range is on national forests, pretty much, and state and lands, public lands. Um, everywhere else, they are in decline, and in some places, they're in catastrophic decline. Um, so there's a lot of emphasis put on public lands as these strongholds. They also get a lot of research bias because it's easier for scientists to get onto public lands. They get a funding bias. So to me, focusing on public lands is just not where the need is. The need is... Um, here on private lands if we want to conserve hellbenders. Why hellbenders, right? I mean, I did just regale you with several minutes of beautiful pictures of all of our incredible other endangered species and our fish and our other beautiful salamanders, so why hellbenders? Um, a lot of those other species are federally listed, except within a certain parts of their range, hellbenders are not even federally listed, so why focus on them? I mean, because look at that. <laughs> it's so cute, right? Right? I mean, so actually, really, that, that's kind of why. Um, 
I talked about how we, my organization has focused a lot on charismatic megafauna, big sexy critters is what we call them, over the years. We know how to do a campaign around wolves. We don't have charismatic megafauna in the southeast. Now you get down in Florida, they got some really cool stuff down there, panthers and manatees. We don't even have wolves anymore. We've got black bears, but we've got black bears. Like, they're fine. Um, Hellbenders really are the closest thing we have in southern Appalachia to a big, sexy critter. And even though most people have never seen them, you look at one and you just can't help but be a little bit fascinated, even if you're a little freaked out at first. There is something to be said for a species that can capture the popular imagination. There is, there is value in that, and there's tons of social science to back it up. Why I feel like that's really okay for hellbenders is in the same way as wolves are important ecosystem engineers in the West, hellbenders are an important indicator species for overall habitat and water quality here in the South. And because they are also historically such a wide-ranging species, where we find hellbenders, we are guaranteed to find other things that we care about, whether it's a fish or a mussel or a crayfish or another salamander species. There is almost no place in the South where the historic range, not unfortunately the currently today occupied range, but the historic range of this animal touches it. If you are doing good for the hellbender, you are just getting additional bang for your buck and you are benefiting aquatic ecosystems across the South. Um, as I said, also there are really good indicator species. So, you know, we have that, I'm sure you guys are familiar with the phrase, but because they are so sensitive to changes in water quality and habitat quality, um, not so much in the older individuals, but in the younger age classes of the individuals, they're some of the first things you start to see drop out of a system when the system is in peril. So when you see that happening, when you go to a place where you could find young hellbenders before and you can't find them anymore, something is amiss. Um, so that's helpful. That's useful knowledge for private landowners in hellbender habitat. That's useful knowledge for policymakers. I will give you a couple of other um, fun facts about hellbenders from a status perspective. Uh, like I mentioned, they, there are a couple of places in their historic range where they are federally listed. There's a subspecies called the Ozark hellbender um, that has been listed as endangered um, over on the other side of the Mississippi River for quite some time. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service recently considered a petition to list the hellbender as threatened across the entirety of its range. It has uh, its initial proposal has declined to list the species in most parts of its range, and the outcome of that decision is yet to, the, the dust is yet to settle on that. But in every state where the hellbender historically occurred, it is on whatever the state equivalent is of the threatened or endangered species list. So at the state level, it is imperiled and protected everywhere it's ever been. So a couple of basic facts about hellbenders. Obviously, they're large. They're North America's largest salamander, um, settling in at definitely well over two feet in length. Some people tell me 30 inches in length. It's pretty extraordinary. They're you know, dramatically larger than anything else you're likely to see in the amphibian world here. Um, they're long-lived and very slow to mature. Um, we think they live at least 25 years, and we strongly suspect that they live a good deal longer than that. Uh, one of the reasons it gets difficult to tell is because their growth, they don't continue to grow throughout their lives. So once they've hit a certain mature point, um, it's hard to tell how old they are. They have a wonderful, interesting nesting strategy. 
they find these wonderful den rocks on the bottom of um, these beautiful, well-oxygenated, fast-flowing, clean rivers, and they get up under these crevice rocks, and um, that's where they nest. The males are called den masters during the breeding season, and they very, very jealously guard these nests. And the females come along looking for what they think is a suitable male in a suitable nest, and they'll come into the nest and lay their eggs. They eat crayfish, that's that top picture. Mostly the, the young ones probably eat little benthic macroinvertebrate animals, but they primarily feed on crayfish. So a lot of the kind of rumors that your trout fishermen in the area will tell you, oh, they compete you know, with trout or they'll eat young trout, probably are not competing with trout at all. Habitat really, really matters for these guys. You can't just point at a stream and be like, oh, that's great, it's kind of clear, it's kind of cold. Look, it's moving really fast. That's gonna be all this animal needs. They are really, really specific in their habitat needs and at different age classes, you know, they start when they're born, they're like smaller than my thumb. And by the time they mature, they're over two feet long. So throughout each stage of their life cycle, they need appropriate habitat and appropriate substrate. And at the young parts of their life, obviously that's gonna be gravel, it's gonna be cobble. And as they grow older and more mature, they're looking for these interstitial spaces that are just right for their body size, which means they need not just a clean stream, but a healthy, diverse stream that is, you know, flushing nutrients, flushing sediment, behaving in the way that a stream should. It's, it's sort of a high bar to get to a quality of stream that can support all of the hellbender life stages. There were 570 um, historically known healthy eastern hellbender populations across those 15 states I just showed you. 225 are extirpated or thought to be extirpated. 219 are declining. 126, 22% are healthy. That's it. Um, this is data from uh, a wonderful colleague of mine, Geronimo Silva, who did, I think, probably the most detailed analysis of um, hellbender habitat at a fine scale in the state. And so these are just very, very coarsely, because there's a, this, a lot of sophisticated mapping going on in here that I don't understand. But long story short, if it's green, they found one. If it's red, they used to find them and they don't find them anymore. So this is what Tennessee is looking like. Tennessee is not, is not among the most healthy places, unfortunately, for hellbenders. Okay, causes of hellbender declines. Um, I am not gonna talk about any of these because I'm talking about agriculture, but I do wanna just say that, you know, even though agriculture is a major part of the solution, there are other problems. Many of the folks in this room are actually working very hard on coming up with solutions to those problems. I can say I have some great colleagues in the room today. So habitat degradation is the one we've talked about, and that's the Duck River down there. This is just right down the road. That's ag. It's all ag. Um, pathogens, harvest some in some places, introduced predators, dams, and of course climate change, which is kind of the driving underlying thing that's making everything else worse. Um, I do want to take some time out to talk about one study that I'm just, I'm, it's a much more in-depth than this, but I'm just gonna bring two slides from it from a colleague of ours, Kathy Jahousey at Clemson. Um, she looked at uh, a really important factor that we care about for hellbenders in ag, which is the relationship between hellbenders and forests. So we need these fast-flowing streams, we need this healthy, cool water, we need this you know, low silt levels. Well, how do we arrive at that for streams? The most important factor in it is forests. Um, so Kathy was looking at what is the relationship between forest cover within a watershed and healthy hellbender populations. Um, so you can see they looked at sort of like, this is basically if the hellbender was here, if there's just forest here, 
if there's just forest within the range, you know, within the immediate vicinity of the stream itself, and then how much percent of forage coverage within the entire catchment. What they found, which is really encouraging and important for us from an ag perspective, uh, man, that is so dazzy, <laughs> is that catchment-wide riparian area appears to be the most important habitat predictor for hellbenders. When you lose that forest cover within that area, you start to negatively influence recruitment, which means that younger age class that I was telling you about. Like I said, the older animals, they can suffer a lot. They can hang in there for a long time. But if they're not making babies, the population is functionally dead. Um, so why this is really important for us is because it emphasizes this need for forested riparian buffers within the immediate vicinity of these waterways. Um, and it also demonstrates that cutting down these buffers and a lot of the other traditional agriculture practices that I'm going to talk about a little bit more seems to be really incompatible with their habitat needs. So when you don't have a buffer on a farm, you're more likely to get cows in the stream, which means you're going to get cow waste and you're going to get erosion from the cows actually moving in and out of that system. You're more likely to have destabilization of the banks. You're more likely to have changes in two really important measures for hellbenders, which are water temperature and conductivity, which it has to do with the flow of electricity through the water. And then, of course, you get increased intrusion from other on-farm inputs. Uh, so here we have this really, really clear link in the literature between agriculture, water quality, the riparian habitat nexus, um, and this iconic species. And it just strikes me that this critter could kind of be this pathway into addressing sort of what I mentioned earlier, which is there's this enormous amount of NRCS money, farm bill money, out there. There's nothing saying it can't go to wildlife. Why not push a little bit more of that money into the wildlife realm? We have a demonstrated need. We have a potential solution. So here's this is where policy nerd gets really excited and says, oh, I, I see a solution here. Um, so hopefully through better utilization of some of the Farm Bill programs, which I am not going to bore you today, you can thank me later, um, at least some of these detrimental practices can be reversed. And then importantly, those Farm Bill dollars, um, and I, I mentioned this earlier, but I'm going to harp on it again and again, they can also be profitable and beneficial to farmers. That notion um, that improvements for hellbender habitat also on private lands can also result in a win-win for agricultural producers is really the driving force behind the Southeastern Hellbender Conservation Initiative, which I am now finally going to talk about. I talked about some of the major threats to this species. They are also major threats to us, right? So where we have good quality hellbender habitat, we also have good quality water for communities. Um, and that's really helpful to us because even though I personally cannot understand why anyone would not be excited about loving on a hellbender, um, some people do not necessarily have that ecocentric focus and that you know inherent urge to care about a brown slimy salamander more than they care about, say, their bottom line or the health and security of their own family. But when you can tie it all in, you can really bring a lot more landowners to the table that way. Um, okay, and one of the things that we're striving to do, and I'm going to start stop saying Southeastern Hellbender Conservation Initiative and start saying SESI because I just really wish I'd thought of a better name three years ago because it's very long. So I'm going to call it SESI. But one of the things we're trying to do uh, with SESI is find ways not only to drive policy solutions towards 
restoring hellbender habitat that benefits communities because A, it's a nice thing to do, and B, then they support us and they begin to share in our values and those begin to be uh, cultural traditions that get passed on and hopefully we can drive deeper, longer term change over time and not just plant a riparian buffer that sticks around for 10 or 20 years. <clears throat> okay. So some of the specific goals of SESI are to improve water quality and habitat by supporting landowners who uh, will do buffer uh, reforestation, keeping livestock out of their streams, removing barriers to passage, so like um, roads that go over their streams that have perched culverts in them and things like that. Um, and then very important to stream restoration a lot is upland practices on their farms. So whether that's no-till planting, which means they don't churn up the soil every season before they plant, or whether that's rotational agriculture so that their herd isn't placing too strong a demand on the root system of their grazing forage. Those upland practices, you can have a hundred foot of buffer width, but if you have one little gully that runs through your buffer and you've got a really crappy stream up here and you have a bad rain event, it doesn't matter. It's going to go right into the stream. So trying to be really thinking about the entire farm as a holistic system. And when I say farm, that can be a farm, it can be a ranch, it can be a commercial forest. Obviously, what each landowner needs is going to be a little bit different. So also having partners positioned within the right places and the right organizations to think creatively across those traditional boundaries. When I first went to uh, NRCS, their state offices here in Nashville, and approached them with this idea that I thought we could direct some farm bill dollars to achieving a mutually beneficial outcome, literally the first thing they said to me was, what's a hellbender? Um, it guts me. But they all know now. They know and they've seen them and they love them. They've totally drunk the Kool-Aid. It's awesome. But, but really, they are, they are soil technicians. They're agronomists. They work with farmers. Even though the farm bill directs them, hey, spend some money on improving wildlife habitat, if somebody doesn't show up and say, here's the need and here's the solution, they don't have the capacity to do it. And that is why SESI is not only about farmers and not only about NRCS, but we've partnered with, and this is just the Tennessee, in fact, this is even, isn't even half the Tennessee list, but a lot of the local land trusts that, you know, or the local river keepers and watershed organizations that know their communities, the Tennessee Department of Agriculture, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, TWRA, TDEC. Uh, we, you know, we have a wide array of partners, and the goal of that is to be in continual conversation with each other about the challenges so that we can always be on the lookout for fostering innovative solutions that make it work for farmers. And I have to tell you, when I came beating down the door of NRCS in the states that I'm working in, and I kind of said, look, I've got this cadre of groups, a lot of people that are excited about doing this work and you know feel the need and are willing to support with their knowledge or their expertise or their volunteer hours or whatever it is. NRCS was pretty shocked. I mean, this is this was pretty left field for them. It is not common that a collaborative group of wildlife interests, unless it's a game interest, that's a different matter, comes to them and says, you know, hey, we want to work with you to do something new. Um, and I think that that was really, really attractive to them because NRC, you know, again, they're very into this mission of supporting farmers, of win-win outcomes, all carrot, no stick. Um, so the collaborative aspect of this is really, really attractive to them. And it's been key to getting landowner trust, too, because my agency logo has a big pink wolf on it. And the Fish and Wildlife Services agency logo is, you know, a big government. And so sometimes landowners 
They don't want to hear from us, but they're really excited to hear from our partners at the Chattanooga Aquarium, right? Um, so that's been really helpful in building landowner trust as well. A little bit of brass tacks quickly about the way SESI operates on the ground. Um, <clears throat> this just shows you the area that we're working in right now. Um, you can see it's mostly Tennessee. Um, and then we have a little bit of southwestern Virginia and then a little bit of um, western North Carolina. And that green line is really just the boundary of the species range within this three-state area. Um, within that state, we are really focused right now working with NRCS to drill in on just a small handful of watersheds. And the reason that we want to do that is because having NRCS support is great, having the staff be on board is great, but they have yet to write me the $5 million check that I keep asking for, um, which means we don't have a lot of resources to spread wide across the entire range of the species, and we want to be strategic about where we put the limited resources we have. So we focused on watersheds where hellbender populations are extant but declining. Populations were not so far gone that they were never going to come back. In short places, we felt like we, make, we could make change. Um, <clears throat> and what we are doing, so like I said, that's the, that partnership element helped with identifying those and then reaching out to all of the local NRCS offices in each and every single county talking about hellbenders, explaining what practices that they already employ in their existing programs that could be tweaked and applied more thoroughly to benefit hellbenders. Um, and our kind of main vehicle for doing this is a program called, you can think, it's called Working Lands for Wildlife. It's an NRCS program, it's fairly new. So uh, some of these other ones are quite a bit bigger, but all told there's only about two dozen species that are in the NRCS Working Lands for Wildlife program. So a huge benefit of the partnership that I keep drilling in on is that show, demonstrating that partnership support to NRCS was key in convincing them to add hellbenders. We are part of an elite club that NRCS has agreed to set aside part of its funding every year to go specifically towards hellbender conservation in those little watersheds that I've identified. NRCS programs are broken down into several different categories, but basically there's either reserve programs, which mean like easements or easement-like programs, and then working lands programs. And the working lands programs, the way they function, and the way we make them attractive to farmers is installing sustainable agriculture is costly. And even if you've got a giant farm, and even if you're Jack Daniels down the road and you probably make bajillions of dollars, you still farm at a margin. Overhead costs of farming are extraordinarily expensive, which means changing the way you do business if you're a farmer is very, very difficult and it's very, very risky. So what NRCS Working Lands programs do is they say, you farmer, we, if you are interested in adopting this more sustainable agricultural practice, we will cover a portion of your cost to adopt and sustain that practice. It's typically in the neighborhood of 75%. There are special occasions when it can get up to as close to 90%. So it's a good old chunk of change. And you would be surprised, even at that rate, it's still, I mean, if it's not very nearly 100%, sometimes a farmer, it's cheap to fence cows out of streams. Fencing is cheap. Even good fencing that you maintain for several years is cheap. But then, where are you gonna water your cows? You need an alternative watering source. You might need to dig a well. You might need to put in a fancy system that pipes water in from somewhere else. Those things are crazy expensive. A farmer's not going to be able to do it, but if we cover 75 to 90% of the cost for them to do it, then suddenly that risk is mitigated for them, and maybe they're willing to do it. 
many, many farmers, and this is devastatingly true in Middle Tennessee, if, they're, if they are row croppers, they are gonna plant right up, I mean, to the very end of a stream bed. And, you know, literally to where they're gonna have like their corn and their soybean like actually falling into the water during a rain event. Because their margins are so small that they have to maximize every square foot of arable land that they have. On the other hand, if they have no riparian buffer, the chances are very, very good that they are losing acreage of land every year. Every year they're losing land, which means they have less and less potential capital, so they feel more and more pressure to squeeze every last inch of productivity out of that land. If we ask them to plant a 35-foot buffer, which is the minimum buffer width that NRCS will support, that's very wide. That's probably like this room. It's they, you, you're asking them to give up an extraordinary amount of income. So in the long term, it's usually going to be a gain for them. It's usually going to be beneficial because they're not losing land anymore and they don't have to factor that lost arable land into their costs. But the upfront loss of 35 foot times, what if you've got a thousand foot of stream bank? You know, what if you're a long, narrow riverfront farm? I mean, that could be 20% of your operation, right? So you have to figure out ways to make it feasible and sustainable for farmers to do over the long term or they're not going to do it. <clears throat> So these are some of the practices, like I said, that NRCS will fund. And some of the ones that I just want to sort of pick out for you that uh, probably because their names are kind of vague, but just to kind of lay person. Access control, that literally just means get your cows out of the stream. Uh, I think probably if you were to ask any hellbender biologist just off the cuff, number one, lowest hanging fruit, what could you do to improve hellbender habitat all the way across the range, they would probably say get your cows out of the stream. Easy to do fairly cheap to do as long as you can find other ways to get the cows what they need. Um, channel bed stabilization, a lot of the ones like that have to do with restoring the way that stream to a natural function. So like I was saying earlier, you can't just throw a couple of, wait, wait for it to clear up and throw a couple of rocks in there. You really have to return the stream to its historic functioning. And that can be hard because a lot of times they have put these streams, they've ditched them out and they are just straight long rows all the way down the border of the farm. It means building the meanders back into them. It means letting them retain natural flow. It makes farming harder. So you really have to sell it to them. Um, grass waterways and filter strips, these are things that you can do on the edges of your farm to catch runoff and fertilizer and pesticide inputs that aren't in places where a riparian buffer might not be suitable. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Some of them are a little more obvious, stream habitat improvement and management, riparian herbaceous cover. Sometimes you just can't talk them into a forest. A forest is best. A forest gives you um, control over your water temperature. It's better at stabilizing the root, um, the, the banks, and, and um, minimizing the likelihood that you're gonna have runoff events. But sometimes, man, they just don't wanna do it. And you gotta take what you can get. So I could get a lot more into the minutia of the sort of day-to-day -day operations of NRCS, but I think this is really, the big picture is we understand, thanks to an extraordinary body of research by dedicated conservationists, the threats to this species. We happen to have this extraordinarily underutilized policy tool that has the potential to provide a lot of solutions, and all that was really needed was the right group of people to get together, show up, be willing to do the work, and be willing to be a good partner. And I say this as defenders of wildlife. When we go to court, 
There's not been a threat. There's not been a lawsuit. There are no sticks. It's all carrots. And it works. Um, yeah. So I will just say quickly, one of the things that makes it work is my incredible, incredible staff. One of the greatest things to come out of this effort early on, we were able to get a little bit of funding to hire a staff person for Tennessee, and that's Geronimo up in the top left. Most folks here, a lot of folks here know him. Um, our Virginia staff person is Melanie, and then we have two folks in North Carolina because North Carolina is just special, you guys, just trust me. Um, and that, that's Morgan and Mike. <clears throat> Um, and they are, they are private lands biologists. They all have extraordinarily strong backgrounds in hellbender research, but they also know the land. They are locals. They know the land owners. They're situated in NRCS offices, so they're performing this joint function of not only doing a lot of landowner outreach and getting out there on the farm, showing them hellbenders, showing them good habitat, getting landowners excited, but they're also educating NRCS in the offices, doing the education, being there every day, constantly pushing forward with new ideas. Well, yeah, I know we've always done it this way, but why do we try doing it this way? You know, it is really, I've had them on board for about a year now. It has started to turn the ship. Um, I will just say one final thought. It has been over two years. God, it's been almost three years. We have not put a single project on the ground. Not one. That is how long it has taken to get where we are. But we have projects in the pipeline, and some of them are big, miles and miles long, across our three states. They're going to get funded. They're going to go on the ground early next year. And I'll finally, I'll, I'll have those pictures to put in the PowerPoint presentation next time. It really, really, it takes commitment, these kinds of partnerships. But they can be extraordinarily um, effective, and all you need is a carrot. All you need is some will in a carrot, and you really don't need to do it with a stick. Okay. So then just very quickly, I just want to say, like I said, SESI is focused on conservation on private lands. Obviously, we're working with ag lands a lot right now because I know ag. Ag policy is my universe, but we are not stopping with ag. Um, one of the things that we are really excited about moving into this space next, you know, cities, obviously they don't capture the same geographic area as agricultural land do, but they have an outsized impact, obviously because of the density of infrastructure, uh, impervious services, and then just human inputs um, to freshwater systems. So your private landowner might be a farmer, but they really also might just own a little postage stamp side slot in East Asheville. Um, Asheville, Nashville, what city am I in today? Sorry, guys. <clears throat> So our next big frontier for SESI is we're going to start engaging a few major municipal areas across the Hellbenders Ridge and work with local landowners to support adopting practices in urban areas that are going to have benefits for community water quality, which we all care about, as well as those habitat benefits downstream. And our kind of big foray into this right now is um, a, new, a new partnership with the Tennessee Valley Authority, who's been a really great partner in this as well. Um, and a conservation group in Western North Carolina called Main Spring Conservation Trust to expand the Shade Your Stream program. Um, and program isn't exactly the right word. It's really kind of more of a model. But what Shade Your Stream is, is it's basically it takes all of those sustainable agricultural practices that I just talked about and puts them on the residential scale or the community municipal scale, whether you're a church or a parks department or just a private landowner. Um, there are some basic principles of sustainable agriculture that are easy to implement. 
We are doing train the trainer programs with some of the local watershed organizations across Tennessee. We haven't made it out here yet. We're working in East Tennessee right now um, where the local watershed organizations can go and work with their communities to get Shade Your Stream out even more. We're making resources available like trees and volunteer hours so that you know any municipality that wants to just voluntarily adopt this as part of their sustainability program is gonna have some resources to keep those costs down. So. That's kind of my big sort of, that's phase two. Once, once we get all the ag stuff figured out, that's phase two, and I'm really excited to be moving forward with that. <clears throat> um, and then lastly, because I felt like I had to, because I don't, we only have one farmer here. Um, just quickly, a couple of things that folks who you wanna help protect, improve water quality and protect hellbender habitat. Don't mow your lawn all the way to the creek edge if you have a little waterway running in your yard. Don't use more, even if you, don't have a creek, this is still true, don't use more than the recommended amount of your lawn fertilizers and your pesticides and things like that. Please, 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 just never dump anything in water ever. Just just stop doing it, just stop it, just stop it. Um, if you have a driveway, you know, it's like old and cracked and paved or whatever, and you know, maybe you've got some water or there's a, a even a drainage ditch, try to find ways not to let your driveway just run straight off into whatever your local water stream is. Your car sits on that driveway and it's full of nasty stuff. Um, and then this is one that's not so much for your own yard, but everybody ought to know it. If you ever go and enjoy the wonderful resources over in Cherokee National Forest, Great Smoky Mountain National Park, and, and you and your kids and your family are playing in those beautiful streams, could you please not move the rocks? Hellbenders live under them and it's really, really, really disturbing to them uh, to mess with those rocks. So be a good steward of public lands when you're on them, okay, and do. Plant native trees and shrubs, they're way more interesting and biologically valuable than grass anyway and they invite all kinds of cool insects and pollinators. Um, you don't actually have to fertilize your lawn. I, I mean, you just don't have to. Um, Consider resurfacing your driveways and patio areas. Like, you know, everybody's gotta resurface their driveway, their asphalt every 15 years or something like that. Well, don't. There are pervious surfaces, you could go to gravel, that allows water and all of those other nasty things that go with it to go down into the system instead of rushing straight off into rotaways. Uh, conserve water in your household. Support the Cumberland River Compact. And your other local watershed um, groups that are focused on protecting water quality and habitat. And then lastly, to the extent that you can, and I know there's some great farmers markets in Nashville because I've been to them, support farmers that stay in, farm sustainably. If they're doing it, they're gonna tell you about it, I can assure you. So find ways to you know, make it worth it for the farmer to continue to farm sustainably. And now, I promise, I am all done. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed hearing from this week's speaker. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about River Talks, please visit cumberlandrivercompact.org. We hope to see you at our next River Talk in Nashville, Tennessee.